Several years ago, there was a TV show that you may have heard of um, called 24 that was all the rage. Don't act like you didn't watch it. Um, Some of you, like me, were hooked. I won't ask for a show of hands, but many of you were, and even though if you're a little embarrassed by that now. Um, The show ran from 2001 to 2010. That's hard for me to believe that it was that long ago. Um, But there... The this was not unique about 24, but it was certainly part of the, the, the series. And, and let me just say, young people, there was a time when watching television uh, meant that you couldn't just start the next episode immediately after the one you just completed. There was no such thing as binge watching where you just go on. You had to wait a full week to see how this was going to turn out. And so, but, but at the conclusion of, of every episode of 24, there was a cliffhanger, right? There was, oh, that's how all of them ended that way. So Jack Bauer or the president or some other really important person in the, the story, they would find themselves in this impossible predicament at the end of the show. And, and the clock would, you know, tick, 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 and then it was counting to the next hour, and there would be this ominous music playing in the background, and then it would then it would end. And you'd be like, oh, how in the world is this going to turn out? How is Jack Bauer going to defy death once again and get out of, out of these impossible circumstances? Uh, well, last week in Esther chapter 4, it, we ended on a cliffhanger, didn't we? If you've been with us, if you weren't, let me just fill you in. Queen Esther uh, has finally committed herself to put her life on the line and appear before King Ahasuerus uninvited. And so this is, this is the moment where she says, if I perish, and I probably will, I perish. She's, she's laying it all down. Humanly speaking, this is, like, this is like playing Russian roulette, except in this case, there's only one bullet missing from the cylinder. Like this is likely, She's going to likely die. And there's just the slightest possibility that she might live. Because, because those who appeared before the king without being summoned by the king were likely to be immediately executed. And that's not an empty threat. There are archaeologists who've, who've uncovered uh, these, these Persian bas reliefs that were showing these depictions of the throne room in, in Persia at that time. And there were some of these show a king on his throne and he was flanked by you know high officials. And, and one of those people that's on by his side is this soldier holding this axe above his head, ready to strike. That's the image. The king has a scepter, and the axe man is standing right there. And so Esther faces the likely, the likely threat of death, the axe, but the possibility, the possible hope of life, the scepter, remember. And so she, this is what she's looking at as she summons the courage to to go to the king. And so the Jewish community, remember last week, it, it was fasting along with Esther and Mordecai and others, and we held our breath. And here we go. We had this cliffhanger, and now we read in verse 1 of chapter 5, On the third day Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the king's palace in front of the king's quarters, while the king was sitting on his royal throne inside the throne room opposite the entrance to the palace. Just all this detail. I'll just say, we, we, we kind of are expecting like Esther to end in chapter 5, like everything's going to come and get tied up, but it's like the author slows everything way down. He wants us to savor what's going on here. He's giving us all of this detail. He's wanting us to 
get the tension of this scene. And so Esther positions herself so that the king can see her. She's like dramatically framed in the doorway as he's sitting on his throne looking into this inner room of the palace. And so Esther can also see the king on his throne. And everything she sees in there just screams power. It's just glorious. It's a magnificent throne room. And all of these pillars and all of this gold, all of this ornate uh, decorations. And beside the king is this axeman. And so, and he's ready to strike. And so the, the, the tension's palpable as she stands there. And, and, and we're and waiting. And she's risking everything to see him. And so how's this going to turn out? Verse 2. And when the king saw Queen Esther standing in the court, she won favor in his sight. And he held out to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand. Then Esther approached and touched the tip of the scepter. So at last, we have some measure of relief from this kind of cliffhanger moment, this, this tension. There's, there's, a, there's some resolution, at least, of this immediate cliffhanger. Now, So against all expectations, she actually won the king's favor. And, and, and she's gestured, gestured to draw near to the king. And so we breathe this whew, corporate sigh of relief when we read this. That's, that's the effect that we're, we're it's to have. And so phase one is complete. She didn't die. Now what, though? And that's just part of it, right? We can't breathe too easy yet. It's kind of like an episode of 24. You have the, you know, maybe the immediate resolution of that last scene of the previous episode in the first few minutes. But then... But then there's a bigger problem that's going on. And, and how is that going to be resolved? That doesn't mean an end to the danger. And so the direct threat to Esther's life may have been diffused here. You know, the right, the correct wire was cut. Something like that. But behind that threat was an even greater danger. Not just to Esther's life, but to the entire covenant community because of this edict to completely eradicate the Jewish people. And so the bigger cliffhanger remains. And we're going to see there are, there are others that will emerge even in this chapter. And, and so remember, the decree to exterminate the Jewish people, it was, it was issued by Haman in the king's name. Remember, he had the king's signet ring, which was his stamp of authority and approval. And so it had now become a law of the Medes and the Persians, which meant that it was, it was irrevocable. It, it, according to custom, it could not be changed. So it's going to take something extraordinary to untie this kind of Gordian knot. Remember that story in the ancient legend? It was, it was uh, Alexander the Great who, when faced with that Gordian knot and was unable to tie it, he just drew his sword and sliced it in half, you know, and, and, and fixed it that way. But the, Esther is going to need a lot less direct, much more subtle, slower approach to this to this problem. And so the king's, the king's aware, obviously, of the, the risk that was involved in Esther even approaching him in the way that she did and, and, and without invitation. So something very important must be troubling her. And so we ask in verse three, what, what is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? It shall be given to you even to the half of my kingdom. Wow. It's incredible. Now, when he says half of my kingdom, that's, that's not to be taken literally. This is this was a common idiom in the ancient world. Just meant I, I'm prepared to be very generous in giving you what you want. I, I'm willing to, at great cost to myself, 
grant you your request. That's kind of the idea. This was how royalty would speak and when they really genuinely wanted to help somebody. So we can expect him. Here's the opportunity. This is the, this is the moment that we've been waiting for. Here's this open invitation to Queen Esther by the most powerful man in the world to, to now, she has this opportunity to just spill her guts before King Ahasuerus to, to ask him, to beg him to immediately stop the plans for this genocide that's been, that's on the calendar now, about 11 months from this time, and where he's gonna wipe out the Jewish people. So here, here we go. She doesn't do that. It's not what we see. Now remember though, she, she, she faces, think of some of the factors that she's facing here that make that, that possibility really an impossibility of asking that direct question. One, as we already said, she would be, she would be asking the king to reverse an irreversible edict. That's significant. Secondly, Giving, granting that request, granting her request would be basically the king forfeiting the possibility of, 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 of bringing in 10,000 silver, 10,000 talents of silver. Remember, about 375 tons of silver into the king's treasuries. That's what Haman promised him. That's the equivalent of about half of the annual tax revenue of the Persian Empire at that time. So this is an enormous sum of money, and this is a king who desperately needs money right now because of his military campaigns that had failed. So third, it would be hard for the king to say yes to her request, that particular request, and still save face. Um, after all, the edict, remember his signet ring, his name's on it, and this is a king who cares a whole lot, as we've seen, about what other people think of him. And then last, just in order to make her request, Esther would have to reveal to the king her hidden Jewish identity up to this point. So this means the, the potential backlash of, 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 of her husband king that she's been deceiving now for five over five years, hiding her Jewish identity. So nothing short of a miracle would be necessary in order for Esther's request, that particular request, to be received favorably, to be given to her. And, and even though she and the other Jews, they've now been fasting for three days, possibly praying. The text does not indicate whether they were actually praying to God or not, or if this was just some kind of exercise. But regardless, she's, she has no, no um, ground to stand on to expect that the Lord will provide some kind of miraculous provision for her. She has had no, you know, miraculous signs or wonders like like uh, Moses and Elijah had that to to give some confirmation that the Lord was at work here. She has had none of that. No assurance that God is doing anything. Instead, she just has to kind of come up with the best strategy that she can, and then just rely upon the Lord to somehow use that to to change the king's heart and mind. That's that's as much as we are told in the text, anyway. And so in response to Ahasuerus' invitation to share what's troubling her, what she wants, Esther does what? She invites him to dinner. Verse 4. If it please the king, let the king and Haman come today to a feast that I have prepared for the king. Now, it's not surprising after what we read in chapter 1 and what we've seen up to this point that Ahasuerus accepts that invitation. This is a guy who loves to eat and drink. He loves parties, and so he's like, yeah, I'm there. And so for verse 5, then the king said, bring Haman quickly so that we may 
do as Esther has asked. So the king and Haman came to the feast that Esther had prepared. And so at the feast, the king once again, he invites Esther to, to unburden her soul. Tell me, tell me what you want. Tell me what your request is. You see it in verse 6. And as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king said to Esther, what is your wish? It shall be granted to you. What is your request? Even to half, to the half of my kingdom it shall be fulfilled. So he, he knows that she didn't risk her life to go before him uninvited so that, you know, she could have a dinner date with him that night. She's like, there's gotta be more to the story here. And, and so once again, this seems like now we have this prime opportunity. Their bellies are full. The wine has been flowing now. They, the king is jovial. He seems to be in this very generous mood. And again, he's, he's, he's offering Esther anything she wants. And so, and in verse seven, it seems like Esther's gonna go for it here. And so begin, she's beginning to say, my wish and my request is, and then she breaks off. And, and she, and she what? She merely asks for the king and Haman to come to another feast the next day. Verse eight, I have, if I have found favor in the sight of the king, and if it pleased the king to grant my wish and fulfill my request, let the king and Haman come to the feast that I will prepare for them. And tomorrow I will do as the king has said. So he's, she's saying, tomorrow I, I, I'll reveal, I'll reveal what it, what I want. I'll do what you've asked me. I'll, I'll unburden my soul, the thing that's troubling me. So now why in the world does Esther not strike while the iron seems so hot here? I mean, it seems like the ball is teed up. All she's got to do is make some contact, get it in play. And everything's, everything's said at this point. He's just begging her to say, just tell me what you want. I'll give it to you. So, so what, what happens? Does she get nervous? She's just clamming up and she panic. Well, we would understand that natural response. Does she change her mind? She's kind of thinking, yeah, hey, maybe this isn't such a good plan. Or is this, is there more going on? Is this actually planned? Is she, is she playing the king kind of like a, a skilled fly fisherman trying to, trying to draw in and, and, and snag that, that, you know, trophy trout? Is that what she's doing? Is she just taking her time, trying, trying to move slowly, not to, not to spook him, carefully maneuvering, you know, the, the fly in just the right spot in the stream so that it's coming by just the right, just the right part of the stream at just the right moment to make it look most attractive. I mean, you think about it. He, by now, he's virtually obligated himself to do whatever she asks without even realizing that he's been hooked. He, he now has twice publicly declared he'll give Esther what she wants. And notice, just verse 8, you notice that she's, she's making, she, the way she's talking, it's as if she's making it look like the king's in full control. When really, she's the one kind of guiding things at this point. But, you know, she speaks, if I have found favor on the side of the king, if it please the king. She's, she's speaking in that way. Since, so, so since all that she's requesting the king to do at this point is come to another party the next day, it's kind of hard to imagine how the king can refuse that invitation. I mean, if nothing else, curiosity is going to get this guy back to the party just to see what in the world is, it is that she wants. So, but if the king comes to her second feast, though, it's, it's implicitly 
he's implicitly agreeing to give her whatever she asks. I think that's the idea. And so it might still be a long shot. This is a king who's erratic, who is, flies off the rails all the time. But maybe, just maybe, uh, after she's done everything in her power to give it the best chance of success, then there will, there will be permission granted. And so then there's a scene change in verse 9. You see this in the text. Now, so with the tension this high, and, and it's been building uh, once again in, in the middle of chapter 5, we sort of expect the next scene to be tomorrow's feast. See how this all plays out. I mean, what could possibly happen within the next 24 hours that could significantly add to this story? Well, if you've ever seen the show 24, you know a lot can happen within a 24-hour time period. But, but and, and certainly that's the case here. Just when, just when we think the tension can't get any, any tighter, when it can't get any worse, good old Haman runs into Mordecai again. And so Haman, he's completely unaware that he and the king are being played here. He, he goes out from that feast with his full belly. He's in high spirits. He is not just high in high spirits over the effects of the wine, but he is, he is intoxicated with his elevated status. He is so full of himself. He, what Haman craves more than anything else isn't just significance, but he wants to be seen as significant. That's very evident in this story. It's quite an impressive thing, he thinks, to be, to be the only one that's invited to this intimate party with the king and the queen. He is so special. His, his star is rising to unparalleled heights. And so you can just imagine him leaving that feast and he's probably drunk at this point and you know, singing these incoherent songs and staggering home after this party. Haman the Great, I mean, he is so, so happy. This, he has never been happier. He has never been prouder. This is the absolute best day of his life. And then he turns the corner. And in an instant, his happy mood is obliterated. It's spoiled. Because on his way home from the banquet, Haman sees his old enemy, Mordecai the Jew, sitting in the king's gate. Verse 9. And Haman went out that day after the feast, joyful, glad of heart. But when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate, that he neither rose nor trembled before him. He was filled with wrath against Mordecai. Once again, Mordecai fails to show Haman proper respect. Respect that was expected and demanded. Mordecai is in fact, the text describes him as unafraid. He's untrembling before the great Haman. And he shows no deference whatsoever to the one who is essentially the second most powerful man in the world, the prime minister of the Persian Empire. And Haman becomes unhinged. His jubilation is quickly turned to indignation, furious wrath, and anger. And so his whole world, as we'll see in this in this episode, it just his whole world seems to revolve around his very fragile ego. He, he when it's stoked, when he you know, like when he gets the invitation to come to this feast that the queen is throwing for the king, he is so happy, he feels so blessed, 
And, and even though there's really nothing in the, in the real world that's actually changed, he doesn't actually have any more power, but, but, but life is good. In the same way, his power isn't really diminished at all by Mordecai, by, by him refusing to bow, but he is enraged. He's furious by it. His, his, you can say his emotional strings are being pulled by his idol. The idol of public respect and recognition and admiration. So when that idol is fed, life is good. When that idol is threatened, he is full of anger and rage. And it's the same hatred that we've already seen in, in this story that caused him to, to push for this edict against the Jews to have them all of them annihilated. And so Haman's joy and his anger, they're, they're simply these outward expressions of his heart's idolatry. We're going to come back to that in just a, a moment. And so for now, though, he simply bides his time. So verse 10, Nevertheless, in spite of the fact that his joy is turned to rage against Mordecai, nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and went home, and he sent and brought his friends and his wife, Zeresh. So once home, Haman, Haman sets about the task of of, of boosting his very damaged and dented ego. And so he does this by calling for his friends and he calls for family and he calls for his wife and he brings them all together and he makes them sit there and listen to him rehearse all of his accomplishments and all of his wonderfulness and all of, all of the things that make him so great and so impressive as a person and as a leader. You see this, verse 11. And Haman recounted to them the splendor of his riches, the number of his sons. You think his wife didn't know how many sons they had? I mean, this, everybody that's in this audience here, they know these things already. And all the promotions with which the king had honored him and how he had advanced him above the officials and the servants of the king. He's just going on and on. I mean, just look how amazing I am. His wealth, his sons, his promotion. He just gives all these details. And then he tells them this juicy bit of, of, of really impressive news that they don't yet know. Because they haven't been with him yet that day. Verse 12. Even Queen Esther, she let no one but me come with the king to the feast that she had prepared. I'm the only one. And tomorrow also I am invited by her together with the king. Haman alone in the company of the king with a feast prepared by the queen. That's it. He'd been invited to the party that day. He's invited to the party the next day. This is great stuff. What a, what a good life. What an impressive, impressive reality. But what do we see? As far as Haman is concerned, none of this is any consolation to him. So long as that disrespectful Jew named Mordecai is sitting at the king's gate. It means nothing to him. Verse 13, yet all of this is worth nothing to me. So long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. That's the, that's the story. And we'll come to the cliffhanger of chapter 5 in just a moment. But for the time that remains, I want us to employ some historical imagination here just for a little bit. 
as we apply this text, as we apply the the truth that, that the God we draw near to is greater than idols. Let's let's unpack that in again with kind of using some historical imagination. So if we could just sit down with Esther and if we could sit down with Haman after the events of this day and talk with them, what might what might be shared? How might that dialogue go? So thinking in that vein uh, with me and flatter me and just go along with me to this morning. So the first thing I would just see, I would put it under this heading, counseling Haman. Counseling Haman. Jim, are you, where are you at? Would you want to be Haman's counselor? Uh, <laughs> this would be a tough case. Um, so, but Haman, he's a case study in, in, in what happens in our hearts when our idols are challenged. This is what happens. And in his case, public recognition, public admiration. This was his idol. And the result was that as long as he was receiving praise and support and respect, he was great. Life was good. But when that idol was threatened, when he was slighted, he responded by lashing out in rage. And, and, and what did they also, he sought to prop that idol back up by boasting before his friends and family. So even though he had unparalleled power in the kingdom, that wasn't enough. There was this emptiness in his life that, that, that no amount of success, no amount of recognition could actually fulfill. Didn't matter. He, now again, as we, as we see this, we realize Haman is the most unsympathetic character in the whole story, isn't he? I mean, that's by design. It, and so it, we, we, there's not much that makes us feel sorry for this guy, and nor should it. We are, we are unlikely to feel his pain here. But just imagine, again, for the sake of application here, if, if, if he were to have been given wise biblical counsel in that state. I'm not suggesting he would have received it. I'm not suggesting the Lord would have, uh, you know, have changed him by it. But, but what might... What might that counsel be? What would, what would we have said to Haman had we has been his wife or his friends in that moment when he's, he's in that furious rage after this incident? What words could have been used to possibly lead his life in a different, better direction? So think in that way. So a skilled counselor, what would they have done? They would have, they would have helped Haman trace back those negative and positive reactions, the, the jubilation and the rage. They would have helped him trace those back to discover what it is that's really driving his life. What's going on inside you, Haman, that causes you to react in such, such crazy, disproportionate ways? His joy and his rage, there are these, these windows to examine his heart, to uncover what's really at the center of his life. What was it in, 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 in life that made him feel so happy? What was it that triggered such inordinate rage and anger in his heart? He might not have been able to give an answer to that. Like us, honestly. We, we struggle with that. Those, we, those diagnostic questions that we sometimes hear and we, and, and we help as we try to help one another uncover and see where those idols may be lingering in our lives, we struggle to, to examine ourselves in those ways. But just looking, looking back over that particular day, Haman shouldn't have had to think very hard uh, to, to see, see that he was craving public recognition. It's very obvious in the text anyway. 
And so once he'd, once he'd recognized his idolatry, if he could, Haman might have been shown by a skilled counselor how his idolatry was being challenged by that day's events. Here's how your idols were threatened, and I want you to see that. He could have been directed to, to repent of that idolatry. Turn from it, seeing how the gospel, gospel is what answers your true need for significance, Haman. This is where you, you have the kind of value and identity that can never be threatened by what people think of us. He could have been pointed to a gracious God who loves His people in spite of our sin because of Christ. He could have been shown His need to stop seeing the world as revolving around Him and His success and His recognition. And instead, the world is revolving around God and His glory. Now, His achievements, they, they could have value, but not, but not as a means of self-promotion. Instead, as a, as a means of bringing God, the glory that He deserves. To see those in the proper light. To see them with thankfulness to God and, and, and platforms to be used for His glory instead of promotion of Himself. This kind of counsel might have saved Haman's soul. This, this might have saved his life if he'd been willing to turn from his idols to the true and living God. Unfortunately, Haman didn't seek biblical counseling but rather, he was content to receive very awful counsel and advice from his wife and friends, right? Their counsel was basically, their counsel to him was basically, just go with your heart. <laughs> you recognize that? Just give full vent to your rage. Verse 14, look there with me one more time and we see how the chapter ends. Then his wife, Zeresh, and all his friends said to him, let a gallows, 50 cubits, 75 feet. There's, there's, nothing, there's nothing comparable in the Persian Empire at that time from historical records that would, that would, where they would have built. Remember, it was more likely a, a, a large stake that a person would be impaled on or hung upon, something like that. Uh, there was, it was, they were hung from a tree, 70 feet high, enormous. Let it be made, and in the morning, tell the king to have Mordecai hanged upon it. Then... Go joyfully with the king to the feast. A nice, neat hanging, Haman, will relieve your little stress headache. That's what he's saying. Look how the text ends, the chapter ends. This idea, it pleased Haman. And he had the gallows made. What's the problem there? Well, there's a lot of problems there. But, what, but, but even below the gruesomeness of this, the problem with this advice was that it sought to eliminate this negative emotion of rage and anger by simply feeding his idolatry instead of, instead of mortifying it. Just give in and, and give expression. It, it sought to, to bolster Haman's craving for, for feeling important and being recognized by people by going for this supersized revenge. Just get after it. Now, inevitably, this is what happens when we try to deal with our idols by feeding them and supporting them and making room for them in our lives rather than by starving them, putting them away. We end up emptier than ever. We end up in greater bondage than ever. And it's only a matter of time before some other thing just completely reignites our anger and our fear. 
The counsel Haman received led him nowhere. But if we're honest, the counsel we often look for, and when we're looking for it, we often receive it, it leads us nowhere too. Now again, I realize we're using some some license here and have some historical imagination to counsel Haman here. Haman's beyond our help, right? He, he and probably wouldn't have ever received good counsel if he had received, if he had been offered it, uh, if it had been available. But the reason I want us to think about this is because our hearts face the same temptation to idolatry. John Calvin famously said, "Our hearts are these perpetual idol factories. It's human nature." And the identities of those idols are most often exposed and most easily seen by considering our strongest emotions, good and bad. What brings out our anger, our rage? What, what, what is it that we just cannot imagine living without? What is it that we fear losing? Those are idle indicators. Or or conversely, what is it that makes us feel this unusually strong sense of achievement in our lives? What are we most proud of? What do we want to be known for? What's the, the thing that we like to tell others about ourselves? What do we boast in? What do we need to be happy? These these point to the idols that are being stroked in our lives as well. And so we can't counsel Haman, but we can certainly counsel ourselves, and we can be used by the Lord to counsel one another as we find ourselves in this kind of inner turmoil. So counseling Haman. Second, debriefing Esther. Debriefing Esther. And so we have we have no indicators as to how self-aware, let alone how God-aware, Esther was uh, here through these events. But if we could just sit down with her, if we could talk with her, if we could, we could, you know, think back over this chapter in her life, over this chapter and, and in the, in this book of this story, what might we talk with Esther about during that debriefing? I think certainly there would, there would be things that we would note that were commendable in Esther's actions. There are. We're seeing progress in this young lady's life, aren't we, as we walk through this story? There is, there is change. She acted with no promise from God for her personal well-being and safety. She, couldn't have, she could not have known at the time she decided to risk her life that that decision would be the one that would ultimately fulfill her, not just her personal destiny, but would, would fulfill God's, God's promises to His people to preserve them. She couldn't have known that. She had no promise of personal safety, and yet she acted. Second, I mean, she seems to have acted carefully and very wisely. She seems to have understood that the, the most direct approach isn't always the best. Sometimes the direct approach is the best approach, but sometimes a more subtle approach is, is preferred. Such was the case here, it seems. So these, these and, and many other aspects of Esther's plans and her decisions and her behavior here and her words, they're, they're commendable. They would be worth mentioning in, in a debrief session. <coughs> but in that time, we could sit down with her. The primary focus would be on helping her trace God's invisible hand at work through it all. And this is what we've been seeing throughout this book so far. This is the kind of debriefing we all need in our lives, isn't it? 
I mean, nobody in the nobody in the story really knows why these things are happening. Just, it's easy for us to to think that they do, but they don't. Most of most of the time in our lives, we don't have a clue what God is doing. We we don't understand why the why the bad things, why the seemingly unredeemable un, unredeemably bad things in our lives are happening. How could there possibly be any good coming from this? It's so awful. It's so wrong. It's so unjust. It's so grotesque. We don't. We also we don't understand how God could possibly be using our plans and our decisions and our behaviors and our words and our actions. How could how could they even matter when we have no visible signs at all confirming that God is using them or at work through them? But we can trust God is ruling over all the events of our lives, even the bad stuff. And God will use those, what theologians call, secondary causes. Our actions, our choices, our, our words, our plans, our decisions. He will use those things to fulfill His ultimate purposes. And so sure, Go back to Esther here. We can see we can see the wisdom of Esther's subtlety. Yes, we can see that. We can see Mordecai's refusal to bow. Was that courageous? Was that was that foolish? The the author doesn't give us any indication. We can see the ugliness of Haman's self-centeredness. We can see the wickedness of his very lovely wife's counsel. And in hindsight, we can see how God uses all of these people and all of these decisions and all of these edicts and all of these promises and all of these plans and all of these actions and all of this counsel. He uses all of it to bring everyone to the exact place where they're supposed to be to do what God has purposed. You can see that looking back. All of these events are necessary in the unfolding plan of God. But we can't see that with clarity in our lives right now, can we? And Esther couldn't either. We have to trust, though, that, that it's true by faith. And, and so in the Esther story, just think, if she had jumped the gun, if she had made a request too soon, what we're going to see, spoiler alert, chapter 5 is the king's memory of, of Mordecai's earlier good deed. It wouldn't have been, it wouldn't have been stirred up again yet. We would, we, the, the gallows wouldn't have been constructed yet. The gallows, again, spoiler alert, that Haman himself is going to be hanged upon. And so it was unquestionably God's plan to, for the whole scenario to play out the way that it did. So that he could use this individual conflict between, that seems like an interruption in the story, this, this conflict between Haman and Mordecai to, to, for this much wider purpose of preserving God's people. So if we were debriefing with Esther afterwards, we talk about how the, the fact not just that God's plan for His people was worked out perfectly, but we'd, we'd probably talk about that it was worked out without thunder and lightning. There were no, there were no, you know, partings of the sea. There were no, there was no one was delivered from a fiery furnace or from, or, or miraculously preserved in a den of lions. Nothing like that. I mean, we talk about Esther's subtle work, but God's work is even more subtle here, isn't it? His hand is active, but it's invisible in the story. His, he's working, as we've said, in silhouette. He's, he's working through the real plans and the real decisions and the real 
even the real temperaments of the people involved. He's working through those things. This this kind of imaginary debriefing with Esther, I think, is instructive for us as we think about our own lives and our own world. God's plan proceeds in the world around us, even when it seems like things seem out of control and chaotic. We've, we've already talked at length about this, I know. It goes forward, not, not in, listen, it goes forward not in spite of our, of our decisions and our, even our temperaments, sinful or righteous, but it goes on and he uses all of it. He uses all of it. He's in control and he's working all things according to his will for our good and for his glory. But we're not passive. We're not helpless uh, in the process. It's not like we're inanimate dolls or puppets that, are, that God is just playing with. That's not how this works. On the contrary, we do exactly according to our desires and our temperaments. Our decisions are real, but God's sovereignty operates in such a way that our freedom and responsibility to act, they're not compromised. And yet in the end, God accomplishes exactly what He's purposed. Can we understand that fully? No. And if you can, write the book, please, and give me an advanced copy. No, we, but we trust that what God has revealed is true. I think that's part of the reason we have this story of Esther. It's, it's not telling us this and all, but it's giving us a, a real life example of how these two realities are working in tandem. So we're counseling Haman, we're debriefing Esther, and then quickly we're drawing near to the king. Drawing near to the king. And I'm not talking about King Ahasuerus here. We're drawing near to the king of kings. Big idea of the text, remember the, the God that we draw near to is greater than idols. We've seen the reality of our idol of idols and our counsel to Haman and, and that they're 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 present and they're working and they're shaping the story. We've seen that God is greater <coughs> than those things in our debriefing of Esther, that he's over all of the decisions and plans that are shaped and prompted by those idolatries. And now let's draw near to the God who reigns to the king. Once again, we, we consider the kingdom of Ahasuerus side by side with the kingdom of God. And we can't help but street be struck by the contrast. So we can praise God. We have an altogether different king to approach than Esther had. Approaching God as one of his children is not like approaching Xerxes as one of his subjects. We don't have to come trembling in terror. We don't have to come wondering whether or not we'll survive the encounter, whether we'll get the scepter or the axe when we draw near to God. No, our God invites us to dwell in his presence, to make our requests known to him. We don't have to be subtle. We don't have to frame our, frame our request in, in particular ways. We don't have to use this, you know, flowery court language. We don't have to, you know, psychologically manipulate God to get the things that we need from Him. No, on the contrary, He's a loving Father to us, Scripture tells us. Jesus said that if earthly fathers know how to give good gifts to their children, how much more does our heavenly Father know how to give good gifts? Gives us the things we need to grow, to prosper, to be blessed. So we can draw near. Hebrews 4.16, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. What a contrast. Our king has this open door policy. 
It's not, it's not because there's no cost to gain access to the king. Not at all. No, our entry into the heavenly court is free, but it, but it, is not, it was not cheaply purchased. As sinners, a death is required before we can enter the presence of the Holy One. God can hold out His golden scepter in favor of us and, and to invite us in only because the fierce rod of judgment has already fallen upon Christ. Our access to God, our peace with God, it's, it's paid for in Christ's blood. And so, listen though, having been paid at such a high price, it's been purchased for us once and for all. No need to make further payments. No further sacrifices necessary. No good deeds to, to earn acceptance and favor from God. And, and no, no appearances of, of righteousness to, to attract Him so that He'll see us through the doorway and we'll be framed just right so He can draw it. No, 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 no. He's, it's open. It's done. And no one and nothing can ever separate us from God's favor and the right to enter His presence. To come to the throne of grace. So what have we done with this privilege? How do we delight in it? We, we have this entry card signed with blood which gives us open access to the throne of grace. We can bring our prayers and petitions to the Lord and, and we have confidence that, 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 that the Lord of the universe who, will, who has, the, he has the power to accomplish everything according to His will. What have we done with this glorious invitation? If we're honest, probably very little. We, it may be that this, the, the, it may not have even had the impact on our hearts that Esther's invitation, invitation had on Haman's, where he at least went away rejoicing, joyful and glad of heart. We ought to be on our knees before God, rejoicing with gratitude, overflowing gratitude for this undeserved favor. But often we live as if our futures depend upon us and our ability to bring about change. We trust in our planning or our subtlety or our skill or our boldness. We don't feel, we don't sense our desperate need for God and we don't delight in the open access we have to call on Him. We aren't shaped as we should be by the unexpected, undeserved access we have to the King. We're more like Haman. And, and, our, and our, our joy is quickly shattered and turns to anger over the smallest disruption. We can be we can be that fickle. We but but shouldn't our joy in our salvation be far more impregnable than Haman's joy in his status? Because it's based on the unmatched wonder of God's incredible and unrelenting grace and goodness to us in Christ. In reality, though, how often have we said to ourselves, we may not have said it, but we've thought it, it's sort of been the in our hearts. Yes, I know that God has made me His child. I'm a co-heir with Christ of His, of His glorious inheritance. And yet all this is worth nothing to me so long as I don't have, and you can fill in the blank, relative, some relative comfort or security or hope or desire or need. And then we're devastated by what we don't have because we've lost sight of the incredible riches and glories of our heavenly inheritance. I mean, knowing God, that is, the, that is the richest treasure that this world affords, even, even though it's now only partially experienced. But when the, when the fullness of this knowledge is, 
it, it comes and it's still future, we will, we will know fully even as we have been fully known. What a, what a glorious prospect, brothers and sisters. This is, this is the hope we long for, that we will know Christ and the power of His resurrection fully. In the meantime, we wrestle though, don't we? We, we wrestle. We wrestle, we wrestle to, to rest in Christ. To rest in His grace rather than frantically trying to prop up the idols of our lives. But we don't wrestle alone. And I encourage you, God gives His Holy Spirit to work in us. He's present with us. He's producing His fruit in us and through us. And what's more, we will not wrestle forever. One day, our wrestling work will be done and we will be ushered into God's immediate presence forever. What unconquerable joy and peace will be ours then? What unconquerable joy and peace should be ours now, church? The more we apprehend these realities, they are. So as chapter 5 ends, it ends this way. Esther's planning another feast. Haman's building gallows. Ahasuerus is going to sleep. And we end with another cliffhanger. And we will come back next week and see how that one's resolved. Let's pray. Lord, you are, you are the one, the only, true and living God. Oh, all of the idols swirled. They're lifeless. They're worthless. And yet we confess we, we so often run to them for, for our identity. We look to them for our, our happiness. We, we look to them to give comfort and, and hope security help us to flee from idolatry help us to take full advantage of the access we have now through Christ and draw near to you our loving father thank you Lord that you are always holding us thank you that you are always with us thank you that you are always helping us even when it even when we seem far off Lord you you keep us you hold us fast because of Christ God, fill our, fill our hearts with hope, living hope, as we're going to sing even now, Lord, as we consider these realities. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.